Good morning. So I'm Kit, and I'm so happy to be here today. Well, there's a great uh, new big word that describes my experience with you this morning. I realized this when I was preparing. I feel like I'm entering a space this morning of intersectionality. That's the big word. Not the technical definition of the word, by the way, but a way of helping you see me in some kind of a context as I leap into sharing some thoughts with you about peacemaking. For I'm seeing some intersecting of some of my own personal spaces here in this peacemaking conference. Well, women gathering together for a conference isn't really anything new, but there's something new here. I'm witness to women seeing themselves as leaders. There's something intersectional for me about that. The importance of women of color at the table, a regard for intergenerational voices with a strong millennial influence, and a bending toward the issues of race and justice. Well, I'm trying to put my finger on it. It's some of all of that. Regardless, how women speak affirmation and strength to each other is profoundly important. So I believe that there's something critical that's happening here in this first ever women's conference for Surge. And I'm super humbled to be included. Well, the second intersectional space for me at this conference is we're talking about peacemaking for a whole day and a half which means we intend to listen to the voices from the margins, those who live in unpeace, who wrestle with principalities and powers systemically. Well, that's my world, and has been since I was 19. I became a Christian then and have lived among the poor for 45 years and have learned to hear the cry of the poor. And so inviting me to be part of a peacemaking conference is a super privilege. And my last comment on personal intersectionality is this. You titled the conference, Waging Peace in a Hostile World. Who titles their first ever women's conference that way? (laughs) Waging and hostile. Who uses those words? Well, titles are important and say an awful lot about intentions. So the team that planned this conference didn't want to hide at all from you or from me what they meant to do, to get down to business about peacemaking. And so I say, well done. I myself teach a Bible study called Mystic Activist Bible Study. And everybody says, what in the world is that? And so I want you to know that I think titles create holy agitation. And I like that. So this is familiar territory for me. And so I agree and join you in holy agitation. So I want to say this. We celebrate the times we're in because this is the kind of women's conference you and I want to be at. That's my intersectionality. So I want to share something my husband said to me the other day because he doesn't usually talk like this because he doesn't really think about women that much because he's just sort of, you know, is a frog that got boiled in hot water. And so... But he said this. (laughs) So he said this um, very, I think, very profound thing. And I wanted to quote him for today. He said, 
so we look at the news, and we can see it in a couple of ways. It can be shocking and appalling, but it appears as if God is calling women uniquely right now, that God is doing something particular with women today. There are things women see that men cannot understand or find difficult to grasp. The positions of power men hold with only their viewpoints and apart from women's almost guarantees failure. Wasn't it God who said, it is not good for man to be alone? Mm. Another way to say that what we're doing here is important and essential, I think. This is blessed work. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons. No, daughters of God. Into a world that is ugly with violence and hate, Jesus sends us as peacemakers to God be the glory. So the invitation is that peacemakers enter into spaces where there is no peace. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, Without justice, there can be no peace. He who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. The way to bring peace is to identify evil and inequity, to call out the injustices that claim the dignity of life and the right of people to flourish. When we acknowledge that our prayers, I love this up here, by the way, for transformation, for peace, for reconciliation, let's take specifically the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave us, for the kingdom to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then, of course, we acknowledge that by praying that prayer, we have committed ourselves to move from words to action. By way of illustration, let's listen to St. Teresa of Avila, who says this, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good, and yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. So the background to this talk today is the story of the Good Samaritan. And I know you've heard this story so many times you might be tempted to check out, but I really ask you to stay with me. I want you to see the characters as us, the context of the unrest inside the parable as a contemporary one, and our action or our inaction as the point of the story. So, An expert in the law stood up. We'll go to the next slide. Thank you. To test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said what is written in the law. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. You've answered correctly, said Jesus. Do this, and you will live. So each part of this parable breathes onto us truth. 
Well, I've asked myself for years from God and others to understand what happens to us when we are filled up, really filled up and up and up and up with the love of God, as this scripture commands. Loving him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and will, and desire, and imagination, and time, and spirit, and gifts. If I love God first and last, then what? I believe this story fills in the blanks. Love. It spills out onto neighbor. Love of God creates love of neighbor. My proposition is that peacemakers are lovers of God. They are Jesus followers. They get this if-then proposition. They recognize that peacemaking is a divine work of love and therefore of peace. God, being the author of peace, calls us to join him in loving our neighbors in their unrest. And so I'm going to tell you a story about a terrible time of unrest and an extraordinary lover of God. It was St. Francis of Assisi, and it was a time of 200 years where Christians bloodied Muslims and, mu- and Muslims bloodied Christians, and they called it the Crusades, and they called it a holy war. And it was toward the end of Francis's life, and though he was frail and going blind, and his own movement had internal struggles, Francis knew how to hear the voice of Jesus. Francis loved and obeyed Jesus, and he loved his neighbor wherever he found him. It was the way of his life. It was the hallmark of his movement. This time God said, I want you to go and preach the gospel to the Muslims. I want you to go to those people they call the enemy. All he wanted to do was go to the Muslims. And so he went. It was August 1219, the middle of the 5th Crusade, barefoot, because he was always barefoot. And with only a few of his closest brothers, he traveled into the blood and death, if you can imagine it, of the crusader camps of Egypt near the city of Damietta, where 5,000 crusaders had recently been killed. It was so gross. Languishing battles and many diseases. And so he ministered to the dying, and then he had a vision, and he saw the end. And he cried out to the crusaders to abandon their bloody mission and go home. But he was there to love the sultan of Egypt, Malek Akamil, who God had told him to go see. And so Francis snuck over the enemy lines to meet the sultan. And he was captured and he was beaten because he was perceived to be the enemy. St. Bonaventure described the encounter writing, well, the sultan asked them, by whom and why and in what capacity they had been sent and how they got there. And Francis replied, that they had been sent by God, not by men, to show him and his subjects the way of salvation and to proclaim the truth of the gospel message. 
And when the sultan saw his enthusiasm and courage, he listened to him willingly and pressed him to stay with him. It is said that Francis greeted the sultan with this greeting, May the Lord give you peace. Similar to the traditional Muslim greeting of Asalam Alaikum, or peace. Peace be upon you. And this surprised the sultan, who was quickly enraptured by Francis's holiness. And Francis proceeded to preach the gospel to the sultan in such a way that Al-Kamil was not offended and did not end Francis's life immediately for blasphemy. Instead, the sultan could see the love that flowed from Francis and was astonished by his boldness. And they spoke together of the spiritual life and reflected on each other's traditions. And the two friars stayed in the Muslim camp for several days and departed on peaceful terms. Before they left, Al-Kamil wanted to give Francis lavish gifts, but Francis refused according to his vow of poverty. This too left Al-Kamil speechless, as he was not aware of a man who refused earthly honors. Francis eventually accepted the single gift of an ivory horn. The encounter changed Al-Kamil, who gave safe passage to Francis and his companions and began to treat Christian prisoners of war with surprising kindness. The sultan proceeded to negotiate for peace with the crusaders, asking them to leave Egypt. But the efforts ultimately failed. Three years later, Al-Kamil offered peace again, but the efforts ultimately failed again. And he consequently opened the floodgates of the Nile to further deter them. Eight years later, there was a peace agreement. The scriptures teach us that the love of God compels us to enter spaces where there is no peace. But the expert in the law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So Jesus told him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. We live in a world of people beaten to death, or half to death, or shot in their schoolrooms, or businesses, or in their villages, or smuggled, or strangled, or starved, or raped, or put in cages, or threatened, or used as if they weren't human at all. Do you remember the story of Emmett Till? 65 years ago, on August 28, 1955, Emmett Till, the 14-year-old black teenager, was severely beaten, shot, and thrown into a river in Mississippi for allegedly whistling at a white woman. His murderers, Rob Bryant and J.W. Milan, were found not guilty at trial by an all-white jury after only an hour and seven minutes' deliberation. The two men confessed to their crime a year later. 
This racist attack shocked the nation and provided a catalyst for the emerging civil rights movement. Till's devastated mother insisted on a public open casket funeral for her son to shed light on the violence inflicted on blacks in the South. It was called the lynching of a child. Although the practice of lynching had existed since before slavery had gained momentum during Reconstruction, when viable black towns sprang up across the South and African Americans began to make political and economic inroads by registering to vote, establishing businesses, and running for public office, many whites, landowners, and poor whites felt threatened by this rise in black prominence. Foremost on their minds was a fear of sex between the races. Some whites espoused the idea that black men were sexual predators and wanted integration in order to be with white women. Lynchings were frequently committed with the most flagrant public display. Like executions by guillotine in medieval times, lynchings were often advertised in newspapers and drew large crowds of white families often after church in a picnic-like atmosphere. By the early 20th century, Mark Twain had a name for it, the United States of Lyncherdom. Lynchings were covered in local newspapers with headlines spelling out the horrific details, photos of victims with exultant white observers posed next to them were taken for distribution in newspapers or on postcards, Body parts, including genitalia, were sometimes distributed to spectators or put on public display. We lament all the stories of the people who have been beaten by the sides of all kinds of roads. Today there is a practice in vigils, in churches, in memorials, in marches, in poems, in songs, in raps, in laments, crying out for the ones murdered to say their names out loud. At 9-11, say their names at memorials for mass shootings. Say their names when black youth Black men and black women are shot by white cops. Say their names. When church members murdered by a racist at a prayer meeting, say their names. Say their names. priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So we're talking about using this parable for the sake of our prophetic imagination. 
The word of God, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the attention of the heart. So that we can enter into places where only the brave will go. Because these places that need peacekeepers are violent and forsaken and marginalized for a reason. People walk on by for a reason. Religious people walk on by for a reason. You and I can judge them all we want. But religious people walk on by for their reasons. And for whatever reason, love does not compel them. Love of God does not compel them to stop. Martin Luther King Jr. in his Compassion and Empathy says this about them. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that these men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. And you know it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over at that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt the man was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them over there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And since this story isn't about them anyway, let's move on. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled on that same road, that same dangerous, bloody path road, he came where the man was. And when he saw him, and when he saw him, And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. And he poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. 
took him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. Why did Jesus pick the most hated person from a marginalized subpopulation to be the good guy in the story? Martin Luther King called him a man of another race. Why? Jesus could have chosen a really good devout Jew, like Simeon or Anna, the ones who blessed him at the temple when he was a baby. Or someone like John the Baptist. Or his own mother Mary. There were good Jews around. Really good Jews. Why a hated, despised, marginalized person person without papers why an undocumented Samaritan why does a person get to be the godly savior in the story have to be such a bad person to everybody else I've been thinking about this question for years well Jesus doesn't theologize at all not at all on the reason why this marginalized person was selected to be the hero of all time. We can only hope to learn from him, to be like him ourselves. One thing to notice, beside the Samaritan's dangerous unselfishness, using Martin Luther King's words, is his ability to see this person dying on the road. This man doesn't just barely notice him and then make sure to move away, but he sees him with a heart that breaks while looking at him. He sees him with empathy, with compassion, with eyes that see with the heart of God. I'm reminded of Hagar, who was seen by God, lost in desperation and alone in her pain. God found her and spoke to her and told her what was to become of her and her child, Ismael. She said to him, You are the God who sees me. For she said, Here I have seen the one who sees me. And she named him Elroy the God who sees me. And no one had named God in the Bible until her. This lost and forgotten woman. Peacemakers are people who see. They don't have their heads in the sand, hoping conflicts just disappear, that if they acquiesce, they might get peace at any price, just hoping that everything will work out all right. Peacemakers are people who see reality. They name its truth, and they get involved. And then Jesus said to everyone listening, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do Peacemakers are activists. 
The word make and the term peace, makers, comes from the Greek word that means to do or to make. It is a word bursting with energy. It mandates action and initiative. Notice Jesus did not say, blessed are the peace wishers or the peace hopers or the peace dreamers or the peace lovers or the peace talkers. Peace must be made. Peace never happens by chance. A peacemaker is never passive. They always take the initiative. They are up and doing. Peacemakers pursue peace. Go and do. Go and do. Women, leaders. It is more than just becoming peacemakers ourselves. For God has given us the work of making peacemakers. According to Ephesians, God has appointed some of us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to nurture and prepare all the holy believers to do their own works of ministry that build up the body of Christ, to go out into all Jerusalems, all Judeas, all Samarias, and the various uttermost parts of the world. So let us take each other by the hand and say boldly, let's go together. Let's go straight into the places which are suffering and oppressed and join the work of the kingdom of God. Let's go out in the name of Jesus. Let's go out and be and make peacemakers. And I want us to learn how to pray with our brother St. Francis a prayer like this or this one in particular. And I'll actually adjust the words a little bit so they don't sound like they're from the 12th century. Lord, our world is in trouble. Make me an instrument of your peace. Feels like there's so much hatred everywhere. I want to be the presence of your love instead. So much hurt, so much injury. Will you help me to bring forgiveness and reconciliation? People are so cynical, so filled with doubt, Lord. Help me to show them how to believe in you again. They're giving up, Jesus. They need you. They need to find hope. In this darkness, will you let us be your light? In this terrific sadness, will you let us be your joy? Oh, divine master, I want so much more to be a consoler than to be consoled, to have empathy more than to be understood, to love more than to be loved, for I know that it is in giving we receive. It is in forgiving we are forgiven. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen and amen.